Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we talked to Sam Ellis, just an incredibly bright guy. After graduating from the US Military Academy at West Point, Sam went on to become an intelligence and cyber operations officer during a time when his field was still developing. It's still developing today. Once Sam left the Army, he had a few itches to scratch, to say the least. We're gonna talk about working in tech startups, robotics, cannabis industry, quantitative finance, and venture capital operations. As far as current events go, Sam's now diving back into his West Point network to connect, guide, and help cultivate the next generation of business leaders who have worn the uniform. We had a great time chatting with Sam. One of my favorite quotes is attributed to Einstein as saying, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. Basically, affix a camera to the robotic arm, layer some software over it, uh, make it easily accessible via web application, and then basically train the robot from the software based on cues, and then leverage vision on those cues and actions. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a blast. Like, <laughs> so fun. I'll just say that Ben and I learned a lot on this one in a very short time. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Hey, what's going on, guys? Sam, what's up? Chilling, man. Yeah. It's a shame that we're all in New York City and we're just like sitting at home on our computers instead of <laughs> getting together and having a drink and actually chatting. Yeah, such are the times, man. <laughs> so we met through like uh, mutual friends here in New York. New York is flooded with veterans, isn't it? For sure. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those cities that denotes a, a really big move and change. Right, like if you if you have like lofty dreams of going and doing something big, New York's yeah. like New York and it's on the top of the list, I'd say for, for one of those. Like kind of San Francisco's, New York's, DC's, that type of that type of vibe. Yeah, I can see that. It's like the type of place someone goes and moves after they graduate from a good school or something. Exactly. Similar similar kind of mindset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we'll just start out with like cause this will be a theme now and later, but just tell us like why West Point. You're like super bright, dude. You probably had your pick of schools. Uh, it's a great choice, but um, why? Yeah, so I, I think many of the veterans that came in along my time definitely inspired by everything around 9-11 to some extent. And mm -hmm. I had actually wanted to enlist after high school. I told my dad, I remember like at the end of my freshman year of high school, I was like, hey, dad, I think I'm going to enlist. I think that'd be a cool thing to do. And he's a teacher by background. So he taught in Detroit and like his whole life. It's like 35 years on like the Ross with the raw, hard, hard stuff in Detroit. And he was like, I didn't work hard to get you into good schools to get you set up not to go to college. It's just like, a, it's a thing that I really want you to do. And so if you want to go right into the military, but also kind of have to go to college, it's like West Point's like something to look into. And after he mentioned it and kind of explained the pitch, I did some research, I, I got really, really into it. And I was like, okay, I think this is definitely something I want to do. And yeah, I geared up for it. I mean, it, it definitely helps to have a little bit of foresight. I think the earlier you get ahead of it in high school, uh, it's, it's yeah. more helpful. So yeah, you know, kind of towards that end of the freshman year and going into sophomore year, I really started to get fired up about it. And that was like the only school I wanted to go to. Did you have any other plans or are you just all in? Yeah, so I applied to the Naval Academy as well and then uh, my parents made me also apply to University of Michigan. Rock solid school as well. Uh, so for some reason it didn't work out. Uh, probably would have been an ROTC there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, but no, I'm really, really, really thrilled that it worked out. Yeah. 
So I said that you're a bright guy. I'm just reading your thesis at West Point, which I didn't have to do a thesis for an undergrad, but it's called Improving Tractability in Bayesian Statistics Using Distribution Truncation, which a small portion of our listeners can understand all those words, maybe not in a row, but uh, what were you doing before you even showed up? Like, take us through that, because you fit like a different profile of, of a military vet in, in your understanding of technology and mathematics and all that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. I mean, I was always super into to science and math in high school. I was also really into to sports. I think if I wasn't as into sports, I would have definitely done like a robotics team or something. Um, but okay. yeah, but by far, like, you know, it was always trying to push it and, and math and really enjoyed that. So, I, you know, I think I, I knew I was going to do probably something technical engineering wise when I, when I showed up to college, regardless of, of where I or when I went. I wish I would have had the opportunity to do even more computer programming and, and heavy engineering and math and science uh, in high school, but did as much as I could. Yeah, but like the so West Point just, I mean, it's probably endless opportunity there for whatever you want to get into or focus on, right? So did that really like give you the opportunity to supercharge that? Totally. Yeah, I, I think you're in somewhat of an unfortunate position as a freshman and sophomore there where almost all of your classes are picked for you. You know, you have all the, the foundational calculus classes and some foundational engineering classes, but yeah, I mean, you also have to take introductory psychology for military leaders, like those types of courses, right? You really don't start to be able to dig into any kind of interesting technical or major related activities until really the end of your sophomore year and beginning of junior year. That's when you really can start to start to get more creative with your schedule. So yeah, I ended up majoring in operations research, which is you know effectively applied math, and then an applied statistics minor, which was really cool. Uh, they're actually decent about being progressive about that stuff. Like I know they have a data science major now. The applied statistics minor was kind of like the, the precursor to you know a lot of the, the the big data and data science movement. So yeah, I was able to get basically five extra applied stats classes and really enjoyed those. But I mean, you were an athlete too because you did judo as well. Yeah, I mean, every everyone it does a sport to some extent. You know, it's kind of the various degrees, like the intramurals, uh, the. Yeah. Club competitive club squad and then and then make the D one and CAA stuff. Were you the team captain? So did you start before yeah. you showed up there? I was a really serious wrestler in, in high school. Uh yeah. you know, no, nowhere near uh NCAA division one caliber. Uh, you know, hats off to those guys, absolute savages. But oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, so I think a lot of people a lot of people actually that were on the judo team did have some type of wrestling background where you already understand the the, the mechanics of your center of gravity and balance and where your hips should be in order to not get tossed on your head. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you start to, you start to have a feel for that stuff pretty early on in, in wrestling. So I think it's, it's actually a relatively decent transition from, from judo to wrestling. And, and you saw that background, it was really common and that was a blast. I mean, yeah, doing, doing judo every day in college was, was super exhilarating. Do you still practice? I don't No, no, no. I'm super in endurance sports now. Uh, but okay. I mean, I st- yeah, I still have, I still have, mad love for judo and, and jiu-jitsu you know there, there's a close close crossover there yeah i think the joe rogan podcast talk about jiu-jitsu every episode i think it's a prerequisite <laughs> do you use any like insights from judo in in your life or in business or anything like that I mean, you don't have to but no i i think like if there's one principle that i kind of extracted from all of judo is that it's not always about being the biggest or the strongest 
a lot of times it's about being really smart about using momentum, right? And that I think that kind of principle applies in all kinds of places in life, yeah. uh, whether it's like investing or whether it's you know like building relationships or trying to close close a deal. Like just just the the notion of being really cautious with how you approach your timing and making the explosive move at the right time. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a, a really good principle that I, that I took away from it. It's crazy how much a business is timing or how much of success is timing, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So you're now into like long distance triathlons and ultra you ran, you said you ran 50 kilometers around Manhattan several weeks ago. You just got yeah. bored one day or what? No, so that was so I was. How many laps around Manhattan I, Island is that? It's just one. It's one giant one. Yeah, you oh, go yeah. way up. Yeah, you okay. go way up, like north, deep into the Bronx, about as like far as it goes. Yeah, and then you cut over through a park and then kind of work your way down. Uh, yeah, that that was a couple people from my triathlon team that wanted to do the loop around Manhattan. Uh, it's actually quite an awesome loop. Uh, I did it again for my birthday. Almost all of it. Uh, but it, it's 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 just kind of a really cool tour around all different parts of of the city, right? I mean, you you, you yeah. touch you know, a couple different boroughs, touch all different kinds of cultures, and it's just yeah, it's just you kind of battling alone out there, which is which is fun, just passing through different parts of the city. Yeah, even just like under one twenty fifth Street. I mean, I don't want to digress into New York talk, but like uh, above one twenty fifth, there's still like plenty to go. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was up in the two hundreds for sure. It's yeah. a different world up there. There's this one part where there was a party that was running all night. You could you could tell just by the type of like carnage that had did transpired and then like how much stuff was on the ground. That yeah. these guys were like just kind of ramping up around like like six thirty AM on Saturday. Like they had told the road totally blocked off. So I had to get kind of creative around that, but it's just like it's wild the stuff you run into. Yeah, you know, like it, there's yeah, there's all different types of of ebbs and flows of nightlife that that kind of crop up when you start that early. Yeah, it's like uh, it's very localized up there too, right? Totally. Yeah, you can feel it. Something about New York that not a lot of people take in too. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you can and you can feel the difference in the diversity up there. It's fun. I play a lot of softball, and when uh, when we play uptown. You know, you'll see like a whole block party just surrounding a softball field. People are cooking out. The whole neighborhood's out. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they've got some music on. Yeah. The vibes are flowing. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So you were talking about how do you find extra hours in the day and then you do these huge distance runs. So like, how do you manage your time or, or like, why do you do it? How'd you get into it? What do you enjoy from it? I've always really liked distance running and I, I think endurance sports in general <laughs> i think there there aren't many sports that are more applicable to, to life and business than than endurance you know especially if you look at like what it takes to start a company or start a nonprofit or any really big type of organizational business or innovation change it's just yeah. it's a slog it's an absolute endurance event <laughs> you know you you're, you know you're going to want to quit a, a couple different dozen times you're going to come up against all kinds of obstacles. And I mean, like that long, you know, long course triathlon, Ironman type stuff and, and ultra marathons, it's, it's the exact same thing. It's just when, and kind of like the, the physical fitness and endurance setting. Uh, and, and I guess it has the added benefit of like helping your cardiovascular strength and fitness too, which is also pretty dope. Yeah. So I think that's generally like why I, why I'm, why I'm 
really into it. So I think yeah, later in life, I've, I've found this you know, a lot deeper appreciation for distance running and, and this more ultra endurance events. It's, it's like, it, I, I just think there's no better way to equip yourself to endure, you know, to endure whatever like hard stuff comes up. You just, the better you are enduring, I think the easier it is. Yeah, I think we all know that there's like a lot of mental growth from discomfort. And with the, with the endurance stuff, I mean, it's just like, it's that, but it's, it's that and not giving up for sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it sounds like you've definitely done some pieces at the time in the military too, where you've gotten good help like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sadly, uh, don't run really that much anymore, but, uh, some sort of fondness for it. Okay. So after West point, um, still kind of like a non-traditional path though, right? Because you go first, you go straight into a grad school program, which some people are going to ask, like, how the hell did you do that? And then sure. you go into Cyber Command. Yeah, so I I definitely was a, a big library guy in college. You know, like there, there there's no secret that I was just logging extra hours on like Saturdays and Sundays in the library. Uh, I, just, okay. I don't know. That's just like what I was into. As you get a chance to you know, kind of prove yourself and have a good track record academically at school you get a shot to apply for you know selection of competitive scholarships so it's like you know the Hertz, marshall Rhodes, those those type and uh national science foundation uh graduate research fellowship that was, that's also one of them so that was the one that I had the fortune of winning uh you know definitely a lot of work but um, also super fortunate that it, that it worked out for me so yeah i was able to go right to, to grad school after uh, studied in industrial engineering at, at Northwestern. That experience was actually really, really challenging. So I showed up initially to do a PhD there and had kind of like my research path and everything carved out uh, in the nonprofit humanitarian logistics research group, uh, which is fantastic at Northwestern run by Professor Smilitz. She's top notch. and. Oh, you know, overall, it, it, it was a, a huge adjustment for me because I had gone from being somewhere where it really counted for you to be a solid leader. It really counted for you to be super physically fit. And it like also count, counted in school, right? But you go to, you know, if you go from being like, you know, one of the academic pros there to being with the academic pros from other really good schools where all three parts of their triangle are also academics. It's just, yeah. it's tough, you know, like, like it, it, you know, it didn't matter for the, you know, for the other kids in college, how fast they could run two miles. It, it mattered how fast they could like, you know, link two theorems together in a really eloquent proof. And like, that's what they were doing. They were, <laughs> they were just crushing it in the books. Well, you know, I was obviously working super hard, but it was a, a, a really challenging transition going from having several parts of life and being really balanced matter a ton to just like, Hey, welcome to academia. All that counts is academia. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was, but it was good. Yeah. So, uh, is it know, crazy going from like the West point structure? I mean, it's gotta be such a wild college experience, you know, and just so different from most people's to then going to a school where you're like, Oh, this is a normal college. Did you have any of that? For sure. Yeah, it was, um, and it was extremely liberating and also, uh, kind of off-putting because it, it's, it's so new, right. It's like so new and like kind of awkward where it's like, oh, all of a sudden I have to like 
pick out outfits like okay dude, what do people what do like normal people wear to every day to, to class like, uh, like yeah. usually you like pajamas and uh <laughs> unless you're a senior and you're in seminar then you dress up yeah, that's right. no but yeah so I, I didn't have the data points to, to know that the you know the pajamas were a, a tenable move <laughs> but I, right. I you know i, I kind of I kind of figured out my own my own flow but yeah i mean you're you, you look more pointed to your question yeah absolutely it was like a a really weird transition i and i think for i think for anyone that's that's going out of the the military into like a, a very different relaxed workplace or, or day-to-day life it's a it's a big jump <laughs> you know but it's yeah. it's fun too it's yeah it's fun and new and different and so was this like bridging you into your army job or was it sort of like you know independently growing your education and you were still on track for your army job Originally, when I set out to do it, a lot of the, the people that end up going to grad school, if they stay in the army a bit, go back and teach at West Point. And you, know, you usually have some type of compelling research effort while they're there and they're able to teach and really impact a lot of cadets, which that was something that was definitely on my radar. When I had just left West Point, I, I didn't have a very fixed path ahead. I knew I was gonna just kind of intake as much data as I could and say, hey, maybe I'll stay in the army. Maybe I'll end up getting out. Maybe I'll, you know, I, I didn't really know for sure. But yeah, that was absolutely one of the options is, is kind of like, hey, here's what a path potentially look like. You could be back to West Point in like seven years after leaving grad school, like six or seven years or something. I think, yeah, which I think would have been neat. And I was definitely considering. Uh, but no, there, there's no like, okay, you go, you're going to this grad school, study this and do this exact job. And I, I hope it's different now. I, I, I wish that they, and they being the, the, the army planners that at the kind of the higher levels, H, HR and resources command, you know, had had the thought to put those type of people in to pipelines where it's like, okay, hey, if you're going to study applied math, we have an operations research center for analysis in the army, you could probably solve some really interesting problems. Uh, yeah. The counter argument to that is like, you're never, you're never like a pure lieutenant. You know, like you're, you're never like doing your window washing time. You're never, you're never doing like you're, you know, picking pennies up off the sidewalk type time, yeah. which I think is important, right? I, I think that's, and there's something that's like weirdly humbling about being a, a lieutenant a lot of times. And I think that's like a, a healthy experience. So yeah, you know, it, it's it's tough. It's, you know, in some, some regards, you potentially want to get people who have an affinity and talent towards a certain subject matter just right into the fight and where they're contributing. But at the same time, if you're looking holistically at their development, getting some time out out in the force or in the the ranges of the Georgia swamps is like a healthy thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we, a lot of times you see like officers really career focused. And you're trying to hit those stages right of development, like at the right time in service, at the right age. If you're doing something like software or cybersecurity or some other kind of skill that's, you know you're not just graded on your command level or your, or your, uh, you know, performance report. Um, do you think the army's set up for that for people who go into that kind of career course? So the short answer is the army's gotten a lot better and they're, they're actually trying pretty hard. Uh, you can look at mostly the, this cyberspace operations and related jobs. When I was going into cybercom, for instance, there wasn't a cyber branch yet. It, it just wasn't a thing. There was no 17 series. 
So typically what people did, if you were more technically inclined and, and kind of wanted to get into that space, you would branch military intelligence or signal. And then you would kind of like get a by name request and weasel your way over there after, after showing some aptitude to actually contribute on the mission. Now there's a, a, a really proper pipeline, like especially out of West Point for like the cyber branch and kids to actually go from right from West Point into cyber officer lieutenants. Like it's a proper branch, a proper pipeline. I, I think the one area that still needs a little bit of work and development is the notion of an individual contributor track, right? Like if you look yeah. at a, a company like like anyone in the FANG, you know, like Google, for instance, like you could show up as a 16 year old kid and just be absolutely nasty at programming, right? Like it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter like how long your hair is. You just show up and if you can if you can throw the sauce, they'll, they'll take in and you can ride, you can talk to a few people as you want your whole career and have like an, a fantastic 40 year run just going up yeah. to the different like L1, L2, L3 of, of software engineer, right? And I think the army, especially for officers, is is still kind of trying to wrestle with this problem, right? Because you know, some of the fundamental underpinnings of being an officer re revolve around around leadership, planning, and organization, just those, those type of tenets, right? So if you're, you're considering this system of of like a you know L1, L2, L3, like whatever these levels of individual contributor track, you, you start to really get a really blurred line with like what is officer, what is enlisted, does it matter anymore when yeah. in this in this type of work, right? So, I, and I think there there's still a couple thorns to figure out uh, around that problem. And the army, to its credit, is is it's trying and it's making making progress. I think that there, there's just, there's still a lot of, of pieces to figure out to retain really good technical talent on that track, right? If, if people come out and are like, hey, I'm going to be an offensive cyber operations uh, guy, right? I'm going to be a serious operator for a long time. Yeah, just, you know, still kind of working on that that type of system. Huh. So what are you doing like day to day if you're in that role? So if you're technical, you're saying? Yeah. It's not like the dark room with all ones and zeros. I mean, I assume, right? Uh, and it's probably some stuff that you can't talk about on the podcast, but. That's right. Yeah, it'd be, yeah. That'd be really, really delicate there. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, there's a variety of key terrain that needs to, you know, it's, it's the same same principle uh, as, you know, as kind of traditional infantry and tactical fighting, right? There's yeah. key terrain, there's key assets and, and those type of uh, objectives that need to get achieved and it takes a lot of skill and a lot of planning just like you know kind of like a really high speed kinetic uh, ground operation um, for you know and a, lot of, a lot of technical talent and, and aptitude to get, get in, and sit down and you know see some of that key terrain when you grind to to have the skills to be to be an operator in, in effect an offensive cyber operator like it's it's very hard earned and, and that's something you should be doing a long time Right, it's not something you should be like. Okay, hey, you're gonna go get to operate for a year, and then you're gonna go do PL time and do PowerPoints for two years. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, you, you get it. Like, you, I mean, you're a serious operator. Like, those skills atrophy, right? Like, if you're not slinging rounds downrange, like yeah. every week, it that, it that just atrophies really fast. So, I think there's there's still, and a lot of people are still wrestling with with that that concept because it's so so abstract, right? Yeah, like, like I mean, you you alluded to these guys just sitting in these like semi-dark rooms with super nice chairs and nice mechanical keyboards and like they're just clicking away you know there's not as much shock and awe as someone like 
putting a bullet in the center of a target with a pistol from like a hundred meters away. You know, like yeah. if you don't ha- if you don't have the ability to like comprehend the execution of like a certain set of lines of codes, lines of code, or like a, a you know a, you see a certain tool get executed, like it's it's hard to really appreciate it, right? So I think that's yeah. that's part of that's a big part of why the the army's really wrestling with with trying to you know get this one one particular pipeline of of really technical person nailed down well. Yeah. And if it takes 30 years to make a general, how how are you communicating some of your tactical progress with someone who's super high ranking? Do you have enough people to bridge that communication? Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 one of the tough issues right now, especially with you know the the number of people being able to eloquently convey really technical stuff into high level you know, general officer level, you know, inputs, right? Yeah. I think that that's, that that's tricky. I think there, there are a few people out there that are really good at, at and have that skill set, but that, you know, I think, you know, the army needs more, like you said, you know, it takes a long time for someone to ramp up and be a really competent senior leader, right? It just, yeah. you know, it, it, it takes time. So, yeah, but you know, again, you know, the army's credit for actively working on it. You know, it's a important set of problems they're, they're working hard on solving it. Yeah. So what do you remember most fondly about being in the military? I mean, what, what was fun for you? I, I really enjoyed being in a joint unit at, at Cyber Command. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was kind of in, a, in an offshoot unit. It wasn't quite in Cyber Command proper, but it was, it was a joint unit where I think some of the lines between different service and even like different rank and level they got they got blurred a little bit and all, all for the purpose of being a more effective team and focusing on a mission right because I, I think one thing you'll you really see underscored in in the in the big army is is really being diligent and careful about the, the you know the whole rank structure and etiquette Right, like mm-hmm. there's there's just like it's such like an unreal complex set of etiquette that I'm sure you get in, in the military, especially in the kind of the conventional forces. And yeah. I, I think that that's part of like the red tape that I didn't particularly appreciate uh, because I want to be able to just come in, understand the mission, and 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 be able to work with with people who are also competent and, and execute against the mission. Right, and, and I think that that particular unit I was in at, at Cybercom was really good about that and. That, that was fantastic and really enjoyable. Yeah. I remember when someone would give me shit about having long hair or something, and I felt <laughs> like being a dick, I would say, it's okay, I, I'm, I'm rated on my performance, you know? But there's like a little truth to that, too, um, because that's, that's just what I wanted. Like, I just wanted to be focusing on the, the job that needs to be done. You know, but that was a little personal preference too. But uh, and, and we all have our own. We all have our own ideas about um, uniforms and haircuts and stuff. <laughs> yeah, for uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, are we? What should we be terrified of? I feel like I got to ask that too. Are we scared enough of like a cyber threat? As not even as military, but like as civilians too. I definitely don't think so. I think by and large, people are. Under, undereducated. I, I think computer and cyber literacy is on the fringes of of being the next like math or reading, right? I, I think it's it's mm. evolving into something that's that important. And if you look at the 
basic or, or, or you know average person's level of understanding of, of basic concepts in in cybersecurity and, and programming in general. I I think it's just it's hard to be able to frame an understanding of of the types of, of terrors and horrors that are that are lurking out there. If, if that yeah. makes sense, right? there yeah. there there are a lot of, of people who are working really hard to develop niche skill sets and tools that go against a pretty commonplace targets that could cause a lot of damage. There's just a, a you know, general lack of awareness and understanding, especially if you look at like what it takes to to totally ruin an average SCADA system or totally shut down a, a, a train system, right? I mean, it's pretty scary to see. And I mean, you have a couple couple companies out there that really get it. So like Shift5, those guys are, are super sharp. Uh, they're doing uh, you know, security audits and, and software to actually help improve the, the disposition of systems like trains and such. Um, so there, yeah. you know, there are companies and, and folks that are forward thinkers out there, but that's a, that's a very tight minority, right? I think, I think by and large, yeah, people, people just don't really understand like, oh, whoa, you, someone could shut down a power grid remotely right and like yeah. that would cause a power outage in my house and that would cause ruin in like a like a summer day right yeah. I, I think you know a lot of people just don't, don't think those kind of thoughts and, and you know, to some extent even if you you have understanding around them and those aren't particularly healthy thoughts to think unless you can take, can take action right and, and like do something about it hey everyone we'd like to take a minute of your time to talk about two great nonprofit organizations both are very important to me because they were founded in memory of my personal friends and brothers in arms. And both are great to hear about because they're all about helping people. The Coast to Coast Foundation was founded in honor of Sergeant First Class Ryan Savard of 3rd Special Forces Group and U.S. Special Operations Command. It helps wounded Special Operations veterans close the financial gap between their lasting medical needs and what's traditionally covered. The Foundation's annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related injuries. This year's ride takes place from August 28th to September 12th. You can check out stops and find out more about the ride by following CXC Foundation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. While you're doing that, go ahead and visit coastxcoast.org to donate. Small Steps in Speech was founded in honor of Staff Sergeant Mark Small, Mark with a C, of 3rd Special Forces Group U.S. Army. It helps children with speech and language disorders get therapies, treatments, and devices needed to improve their communication skills. As a Special Forces medic, Mark selflessly cared for many sick people, a number of whom were children. More than a decade later, he still serves as an inspiration for this foundation. And for our Philly listeners, he was a native of nearby Collegeville, PA. To find out more about the foundation, visit smallstepsinspeech.org. Go to Facebook or Instagram at smallstepsinspeech or Twitter at ssinspeech. This episode should drop on Mark's birthday, August 4th, so it would mean an extra lot to us if you spend a moment to look him up, read a little, and see what a great patriot he was. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. So you hear about the talent pool coming out of military and government for jobs in, in cyber. 
Did you feel that the path that you took in the army set you up better for doing more things afterwards? And I guess, can you talk about your decision to leave the army and move on to other things? Yeah, ultimately there's still some problems like I alluded to earlier around retaining people with technical talent and affinity, right? If, yeah. if, if there's someone who wants to just work on software for like eight years, I mean, that could be tremendously value, valuable to the army, right? Or there's someone who wants to just operate for, for eight years straight. And especially if, the, you know, if there's an officer uh, you know, relatively well-equipped and educated, the, the army's still really figuring out that, that individual contributor track, especially on the technical end. Uh, and I, yeah. I think you'll find that, and, and also, you know, kind of the, the nature of, of meritocracy and independence as well. Uh, you know, being able to totally own something and have that whatever thing you're owning be tied to your success and your speed of advancement and your compensation. Right. For me, that, I think that kind of summarizes the, the triggers that push me to get out and, 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 and probably quite a few others as, as well who, who, you know, came out with technical skill sets. I mean, you look at your opportunity cost. If you're someone who's willing to work extremely hard and wants to own something, it's really, really tough because I mean, there are plenty of ways to be a good patriot, I think, right? That, that you, don't, you don't have to be in the yeah. military. That's not like the only way to be a well, good patriot. Well, a lot of patriot. us don't realize that until afterwards because <laughs> yeah, exactly. we're just like, we have that one track moment, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, if you go back and, and ask high school Sam, like who the real patriots are, and like, is that is the only way to be a patriot in the military? I'd probably be singing a different tune. I was like, yeah, this is the only way I have to do this. I have to enlist. Like I have to, I have to like, go and, and get after it. Uh, but yeah. I mean, now, I mean, I think there's all kinds of meaningful ways you can you can be a patriot. You know, starting a nonprofit that's really well based in principles, starting a company that creates a lot of really good, solid jobs for people, and, and a good environment and good culture. I think I think that's a really great unit of, of patriotism. Yeah, I mean, there there, there are plenty yeah. of ways to do it. So, it's it's definitely higher. You, you have higher access to it and higher concentration to it in in the military. Right. I, I think it's just a lot more of that, that vibe and it's you yeah. know, amplified there, but you know, there, there are plenty of ways to be a patriot military, is certainly an awesome path. I mean, there, for, for plenty of people, it's an awesome path, regardless of, of what you know, you're indexing fulfillment on. But I think for me, you know, just looking at a variety of ways that I could impact the world outside of the military and have a little bit more independence and, you know, meaningful upside as a hardworking individual contributor it was like pretty clear for me that it made sense to get out. And do you think that you had, we talked to a lot of people and they say like, there's this transitional phase where you have your leaving the service job, you figure out what you actually want to do and then you use it kind of as a step. What was that initial period getting out for you like? I think you could discretize the type of, of veteran exits in, in a couple different buckets. There are people who all of a sudden decide that they want to get out you know, they have maybe a juncture coming up, they're like a year out or maybe like six months out and they're like, ah, you know what, I, I, this assignment moving or doing this, this isn't quite worth it to me. I don't really want to do this. And then, you know, six months to a year out, you can plan reasonably well to, to you know, try and find something that, that meets your interests and, and, you know, gives you somewhat of an impactful and, and fulfilling career. But yeah, I mean, it's more than likely to be a transition job. I think there's also the people who get, who, are kind of uh, really ahead of the decision who are like, hey, uh, I know that this isn't quite for me. I'm going to stay and do my best while I'm in the military, but I really need to explore and figure out 
quite a ways out what I want to do. And I, I'm going to try to be diligent about that and, and really, really pull and prod at a couple different different topics and, and, and with a variety of people who I, I, you know, I, I find they're doing compelling things. And then you can kind of chart a trajectory a little bit better, you know, and with a little bit more meaningful time in front of you, you know, let's say a year, year and a half to three years out. And then there's the, the bucket of people who I think are able to kind of plan some built-in transition time. They say, okay, I know I'm getting out of the military. Uh, I'm going to just go and go ahead and plan like a business school transition or a, a retooling or education transition. And like, those are also totally great options because then that transition is kind of built in, right? For me, I was definitely in that secondary bucket I mentioned where I, I, I really quickly realized that the way I was trying to head just didn't exactly jive in the most productive way with, with where I was going in the military. Uh, so I started exploring, a, you know, just like a, a variety of different fields that I think would make sense for me when I got out. And, I, you know, I'd say probably, you know, two and a half years out from my time, you know, I, I kind of was looking at what the, what the type of career paths were where you could leverage a decent amount of, of technical aptitude and just like a, a lot of hard work. And, and like wanting to like work fast. And it, it seemed like starting a software company was, was kind of the, the answer there. At least that's, you know, from the, the data, data I had at the time that, that seemed to make the most sense. So yeah, so I, I just set up for that as, as best as I could. And most of my free time went to learning software and, and reading articles about startups and like how to start companies and trying to do a little networking where I could. And that obviously doesn't preclude me from still being effective at my job in, in the military. Uh, you know, that was obviously still my, my main focus and really tried to do, yeah. really tried to do a good job as much as I could. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was definitely setting up, you know, a, a couple of years out in order to, to put myself on a decent flight path to where I was trying to head. And did you start your own thing coming right out? No, I think that's, so there are people that, that, that do that for sure. Uh, and it's, it's, it's yeah. really challenging, right? Because it, it, we talked earlier about how large that disparity is between being in the military and being in the civilian world, right? Like that alone is, is a significant disparity, disparity. And then being in the civilian world and starting a company, that's that's yeah. probably a commensurate level of, of disparity, right? It's just like another big jump. So uh, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't quite ready. You know, with my experience, I just did, didn't de-risk it enough. Uh, and the opportunity wasn't quite there. So I'd, I spent a year or so- But it was a small firm, right? Yeah, I started, I, spent, I started out at a startup, uh, which is yeah. which is called Tend AI. It's, it's a true ventures back company with founders that are experienced and awesome. All had an exit under their belt. Tremendous to learn from. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're you know if you're going to be an early employee at a at a company, you know, these guys are a great group of founders to be around, and it was a, in a really exciting space. So you know, the premise of the company was doing monitoring and a little bit of control for collaborative industrial robots. I mean, later they expanded to you know kind of all all industrial robots or some of the major brands. So yeah, you know, I was able to get some really good hands-on experience doing early engineering at a, at a startup, which, which yeah. was the goal, kind of seeing the, the CTO make decisions, seeing the founding team make decisions. I mean, it was a really good learning opportunity and, and you know, obviously, obviously got to improve my skills as a full stack software engineer as well. Were you doing robotic vision there? Is that what I read? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So I was doing a little bit of computer vision there as well. You know, it's this company, it's the, the premise to run through it really quickly. And in its early years, it was focused a good bit more on control than it was on, on monitoring, which it's, it's pivotal to, to more on the monitoring side. But more in the control when the computer vision stuff comes into play was 
let's say you have a, a centrifuge that gets loaded and reloaded by some process every five minutes. And in order to run smoothly, you need to check that there's no like broken glass or anything in the way and then just press a button, right? So if that's something that happens every five minutes and you want it to happen all night, like yeah. that would be sweet to just have a robotic arm do that, you know? Right. So, so that was, I mean, so being able to, to train the basically affix a camera to the robotic arm, layer some software over it, uh, make it easily accessible via web application, and then basically train the robot based train the robotic arm from the software based on cues, and then leverage vision on those cues and actions. That, that was kind of the premise of the company. So yeah, I mean, it was a it was a blast. Like getting to yeah. go to work and work with robots every day. Like it's sweet. It's <laughs> so fun. What was the biggest challenge? I mean, I can't imagine that this is like exactly what you were already doing. So totally. you're probably like <laughs> yeah. picking up new new skills every day, right? For sure. Yeah. So this was my first civilian and startup job. And then I worked remotely for a bit too. So that part, I, I dealt with a good amount of like, uh, whoa, am I doing what I should be doing right now? And that thought kind of rolls through your head you know, several times throughout the day, you're like, oh, am I moving fast enough? Am I not moving fast enough? And then it's it's also challenging being, you know, an early employee where like the majority of the company is founders and you're like really the, the only employee, right? Yeah. So it, that's, that's fantastic and amazing to learn from, but it's also kind of tough too, right? Because it's like these, it's this other group of guys that's been toiling together, you know, and taking, taking on risks together, and then you're like the new guy. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's tough. Uh, and then I was obviously technically learning a ton too. Uh, Robert Kiefer, the CTO there, he's a guy that's been more in that individual contributor software track his whole career. So he's an absolutely phenomenal software developer. He's just, you know, he was heads and shoulders above me at the time and still, still now even. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was constantly like, learning trying to keep up with that guy how did you manage the remote work space did i mean everyone's doing it now but uh totally how'd you do that coming right out i mean were you so were you over here in new york and they were like somewhere on the west coast or something like that yeah so they were on the west coast and i was in the dc area so i would go and do this co-working space and i met a ton of good friends there actually because i mean it's other people that are into startups and hustling and software and technology so you, know, you kind of have this like collegial environment outside of of work, but it feels like work if the, if that makes yeah. sense, right? Like, and I so you know I, I think the notion of, of co-working spaces is is really fantastic. There are some people out there still kind of like working through the business mechanics of it, something better than others. Uh, but I, I think by and large, the, the the principle of it is is really fantastic, especially for people who are in like those smaller teams or working remotely or like or you know kind of a sole operator out there. It's really nice to be able to feel like, oh, my working space has a happy hour today. So, you know, I get to be kind of part of a team. And, and even if you miss one of the, the motherships, happy hours or events or something, you know, you feel like you kind of have your own thing, which is cool. Did you have someone else there with you or are you just like the only person at that co-working space uh, at that time? Yeah, I mean, I was the, it was at, at that time for a bit until I moved to the West Coast, it was the three founders out on the West Coast. And then I had this set up with, like four monitors because I had this little like thin client type thing that go to the computers and I had like a, a camera and I had like a desktop and it was like this ridiculous little like laboratory type setup on, on my desk. 
but it was super fun because you'd have people come over and ask you like, oh, what kind of stuff are you cooking up? Like, why do you have a, a little camera connected to this like small, what seems to be a mini computer type box? Yeah, it's fun to, to have folks drop by and, and you get to meet a lot of people at working spaces too that you wouldn't otherwise have, have met. So yeah, I think the model overall is, is pretty neat. So at what point do you switch from that to getting into finance? I still really wanted to make the run at, at starting a company, right? Yeah. So like that was the next jump for me was going from, you know, being early employee there to, to starting Dutchie with Ross and Zach Lipson. Oh yeah, because you started your own company before you went over to uh, Hedge Fund. That's right. And did uh, QuantDev. Uh, this is interesting because Dutchie is an online cannabis marketplace. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Nice. So, yeah. So it was, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. You meet a variety of people that are like, whoa, that's kind of a departure from what one would typically see coming out of a, a veteran or the military. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it really, really quick aside is that the, the other really big player in the, in the cannabis online ordering and delivery space also has the uh, West Point co-founder, Socrates Rosenfeld, uh, which is what wild. So like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, Sox is wise as his name. He's a, he's a good dude. <laughs> he's a great. All right. Uh, so, so yeah, that, I mean, it's it's definitely a little bit of a atypical path and, and I think space for someone who you know, has you know, somewhat more canonically a straight-laced path. Uh, but for me, I, I was more interested in really getting the right opportunity with the right team. Mm-hmm. Cause I know that's, that's so important starting a company. You really have to have the, the, the right crew together, the right crew of people. They can, they can kind of blast through any kind of problem or challenges or, or, or really capitalize on the opportunity. Um, yeah. so yeah, so I got introduced through to Ross through mutual friend, high energy, really experienced business savvy guy. Uh, and he did someone to do the technical and software part. I mean, it just made a ton of sense. Uh, you know, we, we both had similar vibe and, and similar goals. And then we, we brought his brother, Zach, on as well, who's also an entrepreneur. And he ended up joining as, as the chief product officer and designer. And, we, you know, we kind of got after it once we, once we really teamed up and realized that this was a, a really cool problem to attack, good team to do it with, and, you know, good, good timing overall. Is a technical co-founder like the hottest commodity in the startup world? I'd say if you're measuring hottest by most in demand and and kind of like highest scarcity, then then yes, because you know there's so many people with ideas and really good backgrounds, but there's a very tangible barrier to entry that writing modern software for a startup company takes. Right. Yeah. Like it. It just. It takes a, a good amount of time and experience to be able to, to to jump over that barrier. Yeah. Well, you meet people every day who are like, "I got a great business idea. I'm going to invent the robot <laughs> yeah. to walk my dog." I know yes. the size of market for people who uh, who own dogs. I I know all the yeah. corporate finance. I got. I've got. A, I've got funding ready to go. I got the website domain. I just need someone to build the robot. And it's like that's yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Okay. That's exactly right. So, but in seriousness, so this is 2017 where you're launching this? Yeah. Yeah. Around then late, late 16, uh, early 17. Okay. If, if this is like a, I don't want to say like taboo or maybe taboo, but like still a misunderstood market, 
you think you had a little bit of an advantage there, like being willing to go ahead and tackle this? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I mean, I remember kind of keeping an eye on the space in late 2016, early 17. And it really wasn't until like mid 2017 where delivery started to become like an acceptable thing. Yeah. So, you know, we, and we had, we'd actually started out, we launched without even having pickup, which in hindsight blows my mind because it's, it's just like, there's such an overwhelmingly large majority of, of the order volume now that's, that's pickup. Uh, there's just, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles and, and issues around and logistical burdens around delivery. And, you know, we, we launched in Oregon because that was the first place where it was pretty easy to roll out recreational delivery mm-hmm. and the market was pretty well developed already. Uh, we, we, you know, we didn't have a, a really big juggernaut like, like ease knocking on our door or trying to battle for, for territory with them. So yeah, we, we started out in Oregon just launching delivery and it was like, it had just gotten legalized a couple of months before we launched. So, I mean, it was, you know, we, we started about as, as early as we could. Yeah. Uh, you had your troops on the border. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We started out about as early as we could and, and, and in terms of regulatory risk, I guess, but we still had to kind of learn a lot and, and pivot a lot too. Are you influenced? Cause it's like highly state dependent in this market, right? Totally. So are you influencing states or are you just kind of like keeping track of what you think might happen state to state and positioning yourself for that? Definitely no heavy influencing or lobbying or anything like that. I, I mean, that's a, that's a, nasty sticky resource intensive business with with you know not much guaranteed upside right yeah so you need you kind of you kind of stick to what you have control of and like stick to to where you can operate feasibly so you know that by you know like 2018 there's enough states that are recreational legal where you, you just have a tremendous amount of ground to cover right you know if, if you're a relatively early company with like two salespeople and, and you have like 15 16 states you can cover you, there's no shortage of opportunity I'll, I'll put it that way right it's yeah. you, know, you, you just focus on being as efficient as possible and being able to sign as many customers or many dispensaries as possible with you know, kind of the, in, in the fastest amount of time with these resources so is it like a tiered system if you're the marketplace you're you're connecting buyer and seller right yeah so there's the Ease model that some people know that's a little bit different, but if you look at Dutchy, which is it, you know, it's effectively more of a a brokerage for for customers to dispensaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now there, there's a there's a you know good bit of, of retooling around you know the impending marketplace where the the layer of the dispensary isn't really there and it's just product. Consumers are coming on, they're, they're ordering product and that's relatively transparent and there's actually it's very challenging to have a rich user experience around that you know it, it's something that the team at dutchy is really hard at work on uh you know it's no one better to, to solve it than, than the cpo zach there uh, but it's it's, yeah. it's really tough it's, as soon as you go from like you know broken customers to dispensaries you have to figure out okay hey if someone orders uh this mary's medicinal thc patch and there are six dispensaries that sell it how do I allow the customer to just pick this one thing? And then how do I appropriately route it to the right dispensary and, and do it in a proper, fair, equitable, and efficient manner? Mm. Um, so, 
Yeah, marketplaces are, are really fascinating beasts. Everyone's different depending on the product and and, and like who and whom and what you're connecting. Um, so yeah, the, the cannabis one has no shortage of challenges. That's for sure. I also see like a lot of. I'll ask you this because you probably more read up on it than any one we're going to have on, but uh, sure. well, maybe not. But f- so far, okay. uh, I see a lot of vets espousing the benefits of cannabis-based products, whether it's to deal with PTSD, brain injuries, you know, sore bones and cramps, and uh, you know, getting dinged up. You have any thoughts on that? I I think the first point to really underscore is that we're just getting to a point where the United States feels comfortable doing well-backed federal studies on cannabis, right? Where you're getting really clean, smart researchers to do double-blind studies and able to take statistically meaningful results from them, right? So if you're not taking your science and studies from there, it, it just doesn't have proper grounding. I think that I think one should preclude any type of statements and effects of cannabis with with that statement. Now, if you're actually looking at the effects of THC and CBD, oh man, if someone tells you that they can pinpoint exactly what it's going to do and tell you why and when for who, uh, it's it's too complex. Like there are definitely certain types of strains that have impacts on the body a certain way, but mm-hmm. they're, but everyone has, you know, everyone has different, uh, you know, fat compounds that changes their absorption rate. You have different uh, chemical interactions with the cannabinoids in your body that, that you know, do totally alter the, the potential impact on one person versus another. It, it, and, you know, I think, I think the, the, the short of it is, yes, there's some pretty meaningful upside from a lot of cannabis products, both CBD and THC, but really heavy caveat and that it's extremely complex because people are still really trying to figure out how the body's metabolic system interacts with, with cannabinoids, right? Like it's, it's a really yeah. tricky problem. Because uh, for everybody, you know, like I have friends who say, oh, it's a miracle, it totally changed my life. And for, and for, the, for the guy who says that, you have another guy who says like, yeah, I tried to didn't really do anything. You know, totally. you have the guy where it did work and he's like evangelizing over it. I, I think there's, you know, if you're if you're looking at more of the THC side of the house, you know, more the, the psychoactive side of the house, regardless of the, the potency or extremity of it, there's so much mental disposition behind it, too. Mm-hmm. Like you can have people that are very naturally anxious or people who are very calm and you see amplification effects, right? Uh, it, it's it's just it's so dependent on on you know kind of your your psychological and mental disposition as, as well yeah. as you know, what your kind of like physiological makeup looks like, right? And, yeah. you know, it, you know, every, every I think every person has a slightly different experience with cannabis products. And one thing I would say though is that it, you know there are probably a lot of products that are that are worth trying, especially if you're looking for solving a certain type of problem uh, that has some upside on it, right? That, you know, it, yeah, like, like you said, it does phenomenal and amazing and wonderful things for some people. Uh, yeah. So yeah, no, overall an advocate, certainly. 
Hey, pardon the break in the action, but this is the point where we take a minute to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're new, please take an opportunity to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Hit that subscribe button to get our latest episodes every two weeks. More importantly, we know that the most effective advertising is by word of mouth. So go ahead and share us with someone you think will enjoy. If you want to engage with the podcast, you can find everything about us on thankyounowwhat.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at thankyounowwhat. And you can always get in touch directly by emailing thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. If you really like what we're doing here and you like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. One, you can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website. Also, we have a link to our Patreon site there on our website. It's patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. Uh, on Patreon, you can subscribe to us and give a fixed amount per episode, even if it's just a dollar. We, we love the patrons we already got, and we'd love if you join them. Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans as soon as we pay for things like hosting software and equipment. You can also choose just to give directly to the nonprofits we feature, uh, which is great as well. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. Okay, so we jumped this a little ahead, but you, you eventually go into quantitative development at a hedge fund. So where does this play in the, uh, you know, in the, in the career building? (laughs) Sure. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I stepped back from Dutchie you know, day to day and operationally around the, the series a round for a couple personal reasons and some career pivoting reasons. Uh, and I think spending some time at a hedge fund, you know, especially one of the more well-backed teams, it, it, it'll, it allows you to really feel what it's like to work with people who are all highly intelligent and have substantial amount of resources, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting those things to line up, uh, it doesn't it doesn't like happen super often because typically in like startup world you're working under resource scarcity almost just always like it's just how it feels. In uh, yeah. in hedge fund world, oftentimes you know it's 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 not as much of a problem. So it's cool. To, it's it's like different different playing field if, if that makes sense, yeah. right? Like the the way you do engineering is different. The way you think is different. The way you almost like live is a little bit different. The, the pace is, is is way different for sure. Uh, I think that's like a, a healthy change of pace and, and seeing seeing like large scale investment mechanics is, is also super neat. You know how some really good people are leveraging data to solve really challenging problems in the market. Yeah, I think it's a really neat broadening experience overall. So are you paying attention to like finance and economics all the while up until you get here? Or are you just kind of learning on the go and, and seeing how you can engineer things to work in in tandem with the investment team or how does that whole relationship work yeah i mean i think i've, I've always had my eye on quant finance to some extent i mean it's it's like it's just like a super fascinating field i think for anyone who's who's like more mathematically inclined and, and academic i think you yeah. like just you know at, at some point you probably think about if you're you know if you're just if you're writing a lot of software or, or designing kind of complex algorithm you, you kind of think like okay how would it how would it be to try my hand at this in finance, right? You know, it's essentially leveraging human and intellectual capital with capital to try and make more capital. It's just like, it's like, you know, like, like the, 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 
the under underlying like alchemy of it is like kind of fascinating. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like yeah. it's, it's something something I've always like have had. I think even in you probably if anyone probably talked to me like sophomore year, junior year of college. I was I was you know super into to reading about you know, different instruments uh, and, and derivatives and trying to you know do basic options strategies and just trying to learn. I, I, I'm most super super fascinated with the with the markets in general. Um, so and, and you know, I had kind of had my eye passively on financial engineering, but ended up doubling down a little bit more in in, in like technical and software stuff. Um, so yeah, you know, I thought it'd be neat to circle back and, and you know, give that a shot. To some extent, working in and especially more of like a, a quant heavy area of hedge fund, it feels a lot like academia, you know, it, it, except it's, it feels a little bit more like, like big boy rules, right? Like a lot of the parts I like about academia, which is working with super sharp people in really chill, relaxed collegial environment where everyone you really respect each other's ideas, yeah. uh, likes and loves learning, right? Constantly teaching each other it felt a, a good bit like academia and i think i think a lot of the a lot of successful pockets of those hedge funds have that feel yeah it's an interesting interesting field for sure yeah so sort of expanding into the finance thing what you're doing now first we haven't had anyone on talking about like venture capital or or this type of stuff which would you classify what you're doing now as uh, as venture capital operations yep i'd say i'd say broadly speaking yes Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, a little bit more background on it, though. Uh, you know, after leaving the hedge fund world, you know, wanted wanted to figure out how to you know really leverage the, a lot of the competitive advantages I had built technically, and and you know, and with kind of like early software companies, and figure out how to do that a little bit better at scale and. And also increase the the innovation footprint of West Point a little bit as well, right? I mean, I, th I think if you're if you're thinking about schools that are putting out a lot of savages in the startup world, West Point's just not even on that list, right? And I think it's something that I personally and my partner as well would, would like to see the gap closed on. And there are a couple other people I think that are really really concerned about how to keep West Point current and keep them pushing and innovating and and, and they're and, and by and large they're doing a really good job especially on, on the cyber fronts and introducing data science and stuff but in terms of our graduates who are getting out and starting really impactful companies i, I just think that percentage needs to be higher right i, I think that's mm. that's ultimately it. but i mean it's 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 tricky right if you if you if you go through this pipeline of uh, and you're effectively grooming to be an outstanding leader oftentimes that's somewhat orthogonal to the skills that it takes to build a software company, right? Yeah. So the goal and kind of core thesis of, of the fund is is try and find outstanding West Point leaders, guys and girls that are really proven and rock solid, and interested in trying to make a, a, a their own little dent in the universe on a on a hard software problem, uh, and then leveraging some of my experience and and also adding a little bit of capital to to the framework to you know help them get software companies off the ground it's a model that's that's not exceedingly scalable right i mean it, it, this is because i mean you, you have some supply limitations yeah uh but that's not really the intent either it's say, certainly to a large extent mission focused and 
also focused on on the growth side as well. Because I mean, starting any type of substantial effort where you're helping launch companies, it's just tons of growth and learning that comes with it. Right. Okay. So yeah. that's, yeah. And I, I love this. I love that stuff. Uh, so that's been really awesome. Starting to get some traction and, and really have fun. Would it be appropriate to call it like a matchmaking process for like leadership and and problem and, and, and resources, I'd say. Yeah, uh, for sure. Okay. And in some cases, we're, run, you know, we're running into people who are just are really early and just need a lot of either the, the, the knowledge barriers lower. So they're like, hey, I, I'm kind of working on something. I have this problem. I have this idea that I'm really attached to or even have like a rough prototype. Yeah, like I just need, I need some resources and knowledge to help get rolling. Right. And, and, and I guess that also is to a large degree of a matchmaking type type system. So what are the things that you see? Like, what are some of the commonalities that you see with people coming out and they're really excited? They want to start their own thing. They kind of got an idea about it. They're probably lacking some hard skills. They're probably lacking some experience, but they're really motivated. What what does that person typically look like to you? And how, how are you talking to them and trying to initially level set for them and help them? I think there, I mean, there, there are a couple of people that you run into that are really fired up about an idea, but they haven't come to grips with the reality of, I'm going to commit myself to this problem in its entirety and, and do whatever it takes to solve it. Like you, you could like feel that on someone. You could like feel it in their energy. Okay. You know when you like you probably seen that and like someone when they're when someone's just so like locked in. Yeah. And they're like, dude, like I have to solve this. this like issue. someone prema- prematurely quitting their job. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. That, when, yeah, that could be a yeah. when, that could be a that could be a total sign as well, right? Like someone's just like, yeah, I I need to to work on this and do this. Yeah. And so. You know, there's there's those people, and if I if it, if there's an alignment and they have the the the, the competencies, absolutely try and find those people and, and, and work with them. And I think there's by and large a really huge gap in quality leadership for companies. The better you the better leadership you have early on in the company's life cycle, the better the culture is going to be, and the more fulfilled the employees are going to be, and the and the and I think the better the company's going to run, the better they're going to be able to solve the problem. You know, I'm, I'm really, like really trying to find those types of of leaders, and you know, we just happen to start in the West Point Networks just because it's, it's a lot easier and, and it's faster to move through and it's you know, tangible. Is West Point a beachhead for a bigger thing? You said there's limited scalability due to supply, right? If you're focusing on on this network, do you see any expansion past that, or is that going to be a new thing if you decide to do that yeah i mean that's like a that's a totally separate effort i think i mean by and large that's that's definitely in kind of my 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 main personal mission focus is, is to really figure that out at scale is it is, is to figure out ways to empower people at various degrees to really be able to you know attack a meaningful problem be able to create value tons and tons of people out there who, just, who literally just like they want to work hard and they just don't really have a vehicle or a, or a way to do that and i think ah, that that sucks is it about giving back as much as it is about sourcing the best talent for leadership yeah i think so i mean you know one thing my partner trent and i talk about all the time is like how we wouldn't be where we are without every single organization that we touch right so like yeah. man my like my 
high school wrestling team. Like I know I a part part of the person I am today is a bit like that's that's it. Like you know, being like cutting weight and and grinding in the, the hot wrestling room and and just like being trying to be a savage in there. Like that that was a huge part of my my upbringing for sure. And so like trying to go back and and support those organizations as as best you can, I think, is something really cool. Yeah. You know, that's that's something I'll always try and do, I think. And, and you know, West Point's certainly one of those. Yeah, we typically ask people something along the lines of like, what does your life look like if you didn't serve? So what do you what do you think about that? Like who are you today if if uh if you chose something else? Gosh, I mean I don't know. Like the you know, one of the one of the reasons I, I love kind of operating in the veteran West Point network is is just like the the common understanding of principle you know that everyone kind of operates with the same type of principles and this you know it's the same type of like team first mentality right it's so hard to tell where i'd be i have no idea you know i I could i could certainly tell you that i wouldn't have the exact same set of principles and i wouldn't be obviously exactly where i am now i don't know know where i'd be but be a different spot for sure i probably gotten really into engineering (laughs) again kind of weird i don't know so with wpmc it's like three months old right i mean it's super new yeah i mean i'm sure you had i'm sure you had it you know brewing for a little bit yeah definitely have have met some some tremendous founders and potential founders yeah and, and working on some some really substantial problems uh, so yeah, you're pretty pretty happy with the, the the traction so far. I think there are a lot of people who are kind of coming out of the woodwork who have had their eye, who have been veterans and had their eyes on on Silicon Valley, had their eyes on starting companies for a bit. And I think it's a little bit more acceptable now to go out and, and make the jump and do that. I think for for anyone who's trying to help veterans or help them start companies, it's like a kind of a sweet time to do it. I think that's like decent timing overall. Yeah, we also usually ask people, okay, so what's next? But I mean, you got you got something that's three months old, so <laughs> kind of talking yeah, about I'll, that. In, I'll, talk about that in real time. Yeah, I'll be I'll be at it. I mean, you know, it's typically like a three year or so investable period, uh, and the life cycle funds usually like a ten year thing. But yeah, I mean, the next three years that's the where the preponderance of the grind is. For sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm heads down and locked in for a little bit here. That's awesome. Well, but I'm, I'm stoked on it. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited. We wish you the best of success. And uh, thanks for being on with us, man. I mean, super. Dude, in- of course, this has been a blast. Super interesting guy. Honestly, I got to say, uh, met through a mutual friend. And I was like, we got to have this guy on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. yeah. Ben, uh, you got anything? Sam, that was awesome. Thanks. I was curious uh, with the with the principles. Is are they principles that you learned that you also look for with people that you're hiring or bringing on or partnering with? And what are those principles? You talked about teamwork, or what are some of the others? Totally, yeah. I, I think it's it's definitely a, a set of, of principles that I think I look for. You know, kind of like the the real recognized real mentality, if you will. And the the core of those probably had to if I had to boil them down to, it's like someone who has really good humility, especially intellectual humility, right? Like really has, ha, ha, like seems well-grounded and, and centered uh, and and they know, okay, I've gotten, I've gotten broken off before and I, I know what that feels like and I know how to frame up problems so that I, that doesn't happen, right? And I, I don't, you know, over, over under, underestimate and kind of approach things with a level head. 
I think that's a big one. Teamwork, obviously really critical, right? Someone who's who's constantly putting the team first, constantly thinking about others, um, you know, kind of like taking that, like that top bunk mentality, right? Where like, if you come in and there's like a, a lower bunk and a top bunk, like you take the top bunk, so you let the next person is, is get the lower bunk, so you're the homie. Like that kind of mentality, I think is, is super important. Uh, and then also just like the raw mission focus work ethic, right? Where if you, if you have something to get done, you just, you attack it until it's done. And there's just, that's just the only way to do it. You know, you just, you just are going to show up and just send it as hard as you can until, until it's done and that, that type of vibe. And then also kind of the general trustworthiness uh, and, and straightforwardness, right? Like, and, and that level of transparency. That's a big one. I think what you know, in general, but especially look at at West Pointers, the honor code just gets beaten to your head. Right. And, and like, you see a lot of people suffer at the hands of the honor code and that just sears it into your mind even more. But it, I mean, it's a, it's a good thing. It, like I think operating very honestly and very transparently has done nothing but productive things. I don't know that I've had to boil the top view down, but that's a fantastic question. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Ben sits there for like an hour and just thinks of the best question. So don't give him too much credit. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Earlier in the episode, Sam talked about going on a 25 kilometer run for his birthday. After listening to him for an hour, I guarantee you'd be surprised by just how few birthdays he's had. Be on the lookout for Sam running through your neighborhood or coaching some warriors to take over the tech world. And while you're at it, go ahead and order some goods from uh, Dutchie.com if that's your thing. That's Dutchie with an IE. Anyway, thanks for listening to us. And please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and most importantly, join us next time on Thank You Now What.